On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Thank you so much. That was a blessing. Good morning, church family. How are you guys doing? You guys good? You guys awake? <laughs> Pastor Steve said it a few weeks ago. You're, uh, what's, what's the word you used? Interactive. I'm sorry I wasn't here for you when you were preaching to yell right back at you. So you, thank you. You lead the charge. Uh, my, my name is Aaron. You might remember me. Uh, I'm one of the pastors of the church. Been away for a while, and then I was really bummed to have to uh, postpone our services last weekend due to all the un- unhealthy air quality. Man, I've missed you guys. I've really missed being in person to worship the Lord together. I'm so incredibly thankful to have this opportunity. And um, I'll say a couple quick things, two things. Number one, during my break, I went and visited three other churches um, that I've got relationship with, either relationship with one of the pastors or the church community. And uh, don't tell anyone I told you this. I don't want this to go to your head, but you guys are the best. I love you the most. So uh, don't tell anyone, but uh, really thankful to be back with you, even as great as it was to just get to, to sit and, and worship and, and listen to gospel-centered teaching and preaching from my own heart. I uh, really missed being with you guys. And then actually, just a really quick personal update. I'm super bummed. I have a commitment next weekend that I made months and months ago with the Sojourn Network, the family of churches that we're a part of. There's a church in Spokane that has been trying to adopt into the network since like March or April. And I was supposed to go over there as part of a leadership team to meet with their elders, answer questions, get to know them, invite them into partnership as a, as a network of churches. And so that had been postponed, and that's going to be next weekend. So I'm like, I just finally got to see all my people in person again, and I'm going to be gone. But you can pray for me, and you can pray for this church in the Spokane area, that if it's the Lord's will, that everything would just align, they'd be able to join up with us for partnership 
But today, get the privilege of preaching uh, almost the entirety of Acts chapter 4. Got a lot of stuff to cover. And uh, Acts chapter 4, if you didn't remember, or maybe you missed last week, Acts chapter 4 is kind of part two of a story that we started looking at last week. You might remember there's a man who was uh, crippled, who is, who is lame from birth, and he's sitting at this temple gate, the, the most beautiful of the temple gates, the one that probably got the most visitors and the most traction, sitting outside begging and asking for money. And Peter and John, uh, two of the disciples who are closest to Jesus, are walking into the temple. They see him crying out, asking for money, and they say to him, we don't have silver and gold, but what we do have, we're going to give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And a great miracle takes place. And the scriptures call these types of things signs that point to a greater reality. Well, today, because of this act of of God's power and because of the content of their preaching, Peter and John find themselves in trouble with the law. They find themselves at odds with the political powers of the day. And friends, Acts chapter 4 is incredibly political. And so I have been gone for a few weeks and I get to preach in person to you about politics. So let's all just pray right now, okay? Lord, we come to you with thanksgiving that you've given us your word, the scriptures written down for our benefit, for our training, our, our, our correction, our rebuking, Lord, for all of those things. And we ask and we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd help each and every single one of us to come today with a soft heart, with a teachable heart, with an attitude, a Christ-like attitude of humility, that we might conform to the truths of your word and to the image and likeness of your son, Jesus, and and not the other way around, seeking to make Jesus or the scriptures be like us. Lord, for myself, would you guard my lips? Would you help me to teach only that which is in line with the truth of your word and let all of our attention and our focus be on Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we have this uh, Christmas decoration at our house. We have not gotten it out yet, but it's a little wooden tree. And uh, in the tree, it's got these two little blocks with numbers. And you can pull the blocks out and you can rotate them. And it can be the, the, the numerical countdown to Christmas. I don't think I'm going to get it out soon. Hannah Colvin on staff with us, she's had hers out since like mid-July, counting down the days to Christmas. If you know her, you know that that's not much of an exaggeration. But I was thinking about getting it out later today and just putting up the number 44 on my mantle in our living room. Do you know why? Because that's how many days until the election. (laughs) And I just, I want a daily reminder. I just want a daily reminder that there will be a day when the election will come and we can move on from fighting about the election that is to come and we can start fighting about the election that we just had. Is anybody like me just kind of tired of the political atmosphere right now? The the volatility, the the near constant, like you can't turn on the TV, you can't check social media, you can't hardly even have a conversation in a coffee shop with someone without just politics uh, constantly in your face. And it's quite exhausting. So of course, today we land in Acts chapter 4. 
And it's a very political passage, as I mentioned. And when I, when I say politics, I need you to understand, I do not mean politics in the narrow sense of the United States two-party democracy within a republic, constitutional law sort of thing. I'm talking about politics in a slightly more general sense. The word politics comes from the Greek word polis that just means city. It, pol- politics means how you organize public life. How do we live in a society together? I read uh, Plato's book, The Republic, from roughly 500 years before the time of Jesus. And he wrote a lot in that book about how the best way you could organize the body politic, the best way you could organize a society. And if nothing else, I only remember one thing that really stood out to me. Plato said there's an exact number that would be the ideal perfect size for a political entity. Anybody know what that number is? You do? Well, you were at the first service, Pastor Steve. You can't cheat. Do you really know it? No, I thought you raised your hand. Sorry, Will. Uh, 5,040. Yeah, you said zero. <laughs> Other than zero, <laughs> that would be the perfect number. 5,040. He said if you could have 5,040 people, that would be the exact right number of people to try to organize into a political system that makes sense. We have, in the United States of America, roughly what? 330 million people? No wonder it's a little bit more difficult. But I'm talking about the way that when we encounter Christ, Christ comes in and he starts to rearrange the way that we think about the ordering of society. These disciples had some of that experience back in Acts chapter one. Pastor John was preaching on this in Acts chapter one. I listened to it on the podcast. It was incredibly encouraging. Acts chapter one, starting in verse six, Jesus has died. He has resurrected. He is about to ascend into heaven to rule and reign at the right hand of the Father and blowing all of their minds in the process. And they come to him and they say, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Think about this. Like Jesus has preached. He has healed the sick. He has lived. He has died. He has risen again. And the thing that they are asking about is, are you going to set back up national Israel the way that we want it to be set up? They're living in the land. They've come back from exile, but, but it is under Roman occupation. And there's been like a puppet king named Herod. And now there's Pontius Pilate and it's all very corrupt. And it's easy for the disciples of Jesus to see that the Israel that they are currently living in is not the Israel that is promised through the prophetic writings. And they're just still thinking about their nation, their group of people. And Jesus responds with one of his just incredible Jesus responses where he doesn't answer their direct question directly, but he tries to get them to see things from the perspective of God. He says, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the father has set by his own authority. Like, hey, don't worry about it. Israel will be restored when Israel's going to be restored. But instead, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea, but to Samaria and even to the very ends of the earth, to far-flung places like Corinth and, and Thessalonica and Rome and Linwood, Washington. 
And here we are today as recipients of that message. But these disciples had to have their political priorities rearranged because of following Jesus. And that's the big idea that I hope to get across to all of us today. It's this, being a part of Jesus' kingdom rearranges our political priorities and sometimes, not always, but sometimes will put us at odds with the political powers of the day. Now, these disciples are going to experience persecution. How many of you know that persecution is a real thing? Religious persecution. And when they are persecuted, we're going to see that they respond in three ways. They respond with preaching, with perseverance, and with prayer. Man, I'm pretty proud of that. Okay, okay, I've been off for a few weeks, right? When persecuted, they're going to preach, they're going to persevere, and they're going to pray. But first, some perspective. Man, I'm loving this, you guys. So good. You've missed me, right? Little perspective, okay? I want to zoom out. Just give me five minutes to just zoom out and, and help set a framework for how we as Christians are to think about living in the kingdoms of this world, as well as the kingdom of heaven. So four quick points. The first one is this. Christians are a part of a kingdom, and that is called the kingdom of God. It's interesting to think about when when you read in the gospels, particularly Matthew, but even in Luke, like in chapter eight, verse one, it says that Jesus went throughout the region proclaiming the gospel. And it's interesting because Jesus has not yet died, nor has he risen, And yet he's still preaching the gospel. So what is this gospel that he's preaching before his death and resurrection? We are told explicitly time and time and time again that the good news is the gospel of the kingdom of God. That the apostle Paul writes in Colossians 1, we all studied Colossians together earlier this year, in Colossians 1, that when we trust in Jesus, he transfers us out of the kingdom of darkness and puts us into the kingdom of his beloved son. How many of you are thankful for that? Is that good news to anyone here today? That you have been transferred, you've been redeemed out of a corrupt kingdom and brought into the kingdom of his son. And Hebrews 12, 28 says, let us be grateful because we have, present tense, received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Cannot be shaken. So you have a citizenship in the kingdom of God. Number two, you are also a citizen of earthly kingdoms. And maybe by way of like sub point, I'll just say this. Earthly kingdoms have legitimate authority that is only legitimate because it has been on loan from God Almighty, the one who has all authority. Remember last year when we all were studying the book of Daniel, chapter four, it says the most high is the ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone that he Wants or Romans 13, classic passage from the Apostle Paul says, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So you have dual citizenship. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God, and yet you also live as an earthly citizen of the kingdom of America, if I can use that language. You're like, well, wait a minute. I thought we were a democracy in a republic. Yeah, we're also kind of an empire and kind of an oligarchy and kind of just a mess right now, too. So now, point number three, Christians must learn 
to live in the overlap and the tensions. How many of you know, quick show of hands, that sometimes the things of the kingdom of God don't always align with earthly kingdoms? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Now, we get ourselves into trouble when we try to take the kingdom of God and conflate it with earthly kingdom. This is called the Holy Roman Empire in Europe. If you don't know what that is, check history. It's on the internet, okay? But basically the idea of we are going to bring about the kingdom of God through force and they're going to be one and the same. Or if you want to see uh, uh, the opposite sort of extreme, we get into a mistake when we, we try to completely separate and act as though we did not live in kingdoms of the earth like the Anabaptists did. Complete separation, complete. I don't know what you guys are doing over there in your earthly kingdoms. We're going to go over here in our own sandbox and play with our own toys. Listen, friends, we live in the already but not yet of God's kingdom. Jesus said that we are to pray that his kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. So let me ask you this question. Has God's kingdom come? Yes. Yes. Is God's kingdom still coming? Will God's kingdom come in full one day? Thank you. Yes, because the book of Revelation tells us that one day the kingdoms of this world will be the kingdom of our Lord and he will rule and reign forever and there will be no more elections. But until that day, we must learn to live the the teachings of our Lord Jesus to give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to give unto God that which is God's. It is hard to do that to live in the tension and the overlap, which brings me to point number four, which is the Christian's primary allegiance must be to God's kingdom. If there comes a time where there's these tensions or overlaps or some sort of a conflict, we go with the Sermon on the Mount, not the U.S. Constitution. The gospel reorders our priorities. Let me share a story with you. I went to a... Christian Baptist private school for three years in elementary school. It is where I learned good King James Bible memory verses. Thou art welcome. It is where I learned to tie a necktie. This is not a clip-on, despite Pastor Shane's uh, objections. This is a real tie, an actual human necktie tied with my own two hands. Thank you, Baptist Christian school. At this Baptist Christian school, every single morning we would say three pledges. We would say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, right? You remember that? We would say a pledge to something called the Christian flag, which to this day, I have no idea what that even is. It was a flag for Christians, cool. And then we would say a pledge to the Bible. I can very distinctly remember being in fifth grade. Fifth grade, so how old old am I in fifth grade? Like 22, 23, something like that? Yeah, like 10, 11 years old. And I can very distinctly remember saying, I think we put these in the wrong order. Because it was U.S. flag first. Something weird, the Christian flag, like Christendom. I don't even know what that is. And then the Bible is God's holy word. Lamp into my feet and a light into my path. We put that last. I know I was a weird kid. These are the things I was thinking about in fifth grade. Friends, the gospel messes up our political priorities. And we are called to put the kingdom of God first and foremost. 
And it's this process that these disciples are learning as we read in Acts chapter four, verse one. While they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them. Friends, these are all authority figures. It's the police chief and it's the city council or whatever. The Sadducees were one of two. <laughs> okay, it's kind of surprising. Me. There were two major political parties in the day when it came to the priestly system. It is a it is a oversimplification, but the two party thing. The Sadducees were more liberal, progressive. They were the ones that were more in power of the day, and the Pharisees were more conservative, reform sort of movement, trying to you know get back to the to the Torah. They're caught in kind of a two party system. Again, it's it's it is not a direct one to one correlation for us, but it's just interesting to think about. They confronted them. I love this because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees did not believe in any resurrection. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. They put them in the overnight holding tank, right? It's like the drunk tank for Jesus. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So the next day, listen to this list of people in authority, rulers, Elders, like, like local tribal chieftains, so to speak, and scribes, that's the like lawyers and legal authorities, assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. This is, a, this is the aristocracy. This is like saying the Kennedys or the Clintons or the Bushes or something like that in our context where it's this family that's all in various forms of power. After Peter and John uh, stand before them. They had them stand before them and they began to question them. By what power or in what name? What authority have you done this? Are you guys tracking with me? Are you seeing how political this is? Now, what's Peter gonna do? Because we're not just a few months removed from the arrest of Jesus where Peter denies three times even to a young girl and runs away in cowardice and fear. What's Peter going to do? He is going to preach the gospel of Jesus. Verse 8. Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and you elders, if we are being examined today, about a good deed done to a disabled man and by what means he was healed. Let me make something known to you and to all the people of Israel. He's like, why are we in trouble? Because we did something good? Because we healed a guy? All right, well, let me tell you exactly what's going on here. This is not just about a healing. It is by the name or the authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. It's by him that this man is standing here before you healthy. Peter does not preach a sermon about how to get healed. Three tips to a, you know, a cripple-free life. He says, this is about Jesus, his death and his resurrection. Don't miss the main point, Peter says. And then he does something interesting. He quotes from Psalm 118. He says, this Jesus is, quote, the stone rejected by you builders, which has now become the cornerstone. The building materials that you thought were not fit to be used in this house, this, this kingdom that God is building, has now actually become the most important part. You know how if you go to the hardware store and they look at the board and it's all warped and twisted and you throw it on the scrap heap? They're saying, you know, Peter's saying, it's like that. You guys rejected Jesus, but God the Father has used him in the most important way to establish 
establish his kingdom. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Now, friends, listen, we can quote that in a more purely spiritual sort of sense. There's only one name under which people are saved. It is the name of Jesus. But friends, remember our context here. This is a highly political sort of moment. And the psalm that Peter quotes is a highly political psalm. You may not have realized it, but we actually had all of our liturgy pieces in the worship at the time of singing all came from Psalm 118. And we read this together where it says that it is better to take reference in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Friends, it is so easy to put our trust in earthly rulers. It is so easy to let our attention be dominated by who's in the House, who's in the Senate, who's in the governor's race, who's in the president's race, who is going on the, the, the Supreme Court. I mean, for crying out loud, even the events of this last week with the passing away of a Supreme Court justice, it's just more fuel on an already uh, a political bonfire that we see going on. And friends, you and I can fall into this trap of putting our trust in earthly rulers and princes and kings and queens. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody with me? I, I realized recently, like looking through Facebook, that the way that people talk about our elected officials in Washington, D.C., just sounds an awful lot like the way that the ancient Greeks would talk about like Zeus and Artemis and Athena and Hercules. Like it's this giant soap opera that affects all of our lives. And if only my, you know, the, the tribal God that I'm loyal to would, would win, then everything would be better. Friends, it is better to trust in the Lord than in man or in princes. Now, I want to say a little something here because Peter preaches the gospel. He preaches the gospel. And I'm using that word on purpose because I want to convince each and every single one of you of something in the next couple of minutes. It's this, And it's this. You are a preacher of the gospel. When we were going through the book of Daniel, Pastor Kyle found us this book called Evangelism as Exiles. Really good book. And it talks about having to do evangelism in a different sort of a way. Not the, the big rallies. This guy was a missionary in um, an Asian country that was Muslim majority and it was illegal to preach the gospel. So you, you don't rent out stadiums and do revival services there. You have to learn how to share the gospel a little bit differently. And in this book, he says that the phrase that we like to use in the United States of America is share the gospel. Share the gospel. Well, on the one hand, that's totally good. Like I found something good. I want to share it with others. There's only one problem. Not in the Bible. The phrase share the gospel is nowhere to be found in the Bible. And I actually went and did some homework this last week. There are three words used about telling other people the gospel in the entirety of the New Testament. Caruso, which is like an official public declaration. Parousia, which is like outspokenness or boldness. And evangelizo, which is the proclaim good news, evangelize. The point is that everywhere where believers are described as talking about Jesus to other people, it is not done in a gentle kind of sharing sort of way. It's much more bold and it's much more hard to ignore. Now listen, I, I have noticed in my own heart there are times 
where I am more bold with all of you on a Sunday because I, I'm of the opinion that, you know, most everybody here is a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you're here because maybe you are interested or you want to learn. But in real life conversations with people, I will do this where I'll kind of soft, I'll soft sell, I'll, I'll back off. Anybody just with me on that? Like I've noticed that about myself. Anybody? Now listen, I am not advocating you becoming a, a, a jerk or a loudmouth or something that's going to turn people off. We are supposed to do this with compassion and grace, like the, like the letter from Peter says, but, but, but there is something bold about it. There is something like, hey, I got to tell you something. You ever had that experience where someone comes into the office like, you guys, you will not believe what I saw on the way over here. And then they tell you about, you know, something that happened, right? Like that kind of passion, that kind of urgency. You guys, I got to tell you about Jesus. This is, this, this is going to sound crazy, but he died and he came back to life. Can you even believe that? And now he claims to be the Lord of all things. Friends, I just, I simply want to put before you that you are a preacher of the gospel. It's not just from the book of Acts. It's important that we remember that in the book of Acts, we're kind of getting a, a, almost like a greatest hits. And it's the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. But church history goes on to tell us that after some of these big miraculous things that God did through the apostles, it is the ordinary, average, everyday Christian that really uh, continued the spread of the gospel through the first few centuries of the church. Justo Gonzalez is an incredible church historian. He writes this. He says, the ancient church knew nothing of evangelistic services or revivals. Evangelism did not take place in church services, but rather as Celsus, who's a Roman historian, said, in kitchens, shops, and markets. Quick show of hands. How many of you have a kitchen? All right, you got a place to do evangelism then. A few famous teachers, such as Justin and Origen, held debates in their schools and thus won some converts among the intelligentsia, you know, the, the, the upper uh, class. But the fact remains that most converts were made by anonymous Christians whose witness led others to their faith. Another surprising fact about the early expansion of Christianity is that after the New Testament, very little is said of any, excuse me, missionaries going from place to place like Paul and Barnabas had done. It is clear that the enormous spread of the gospel in those first few centuries was not due to full-time missionaries, but rather to the many Christians who traveled for other reasons. Slaves, merchants, exiles, condemned to work in the mines, and the like. Okay, friends, we believe in something called the priesthood of believers. The priesthood of believers, that you all are given the same Holy Spirit and you are all gifted in various ways for the work of the ministry. And one of the real tragic things about what I do or any of the other elders who get up here and stand and we preach is it could lead you to the mistaken conclusion that you are in fact not a preacher of the gospel when in fact every single one of you who has been saved by Jesus, you are a preacher of the gospel. You're a preacher of the gospel. I'm a, I'm a cheerleader at best. I'm here to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. All of the elders of the church, we're here to serve you so you can go preach the gospel. This is a luxury. If you took all this away where we're gathering together, we're literally making my obnoxious voice louder with speakers. We have brothers and sisters in Iran who cannot do that right now. But they are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let us learn what that looks like. They preach the gospel. Verse 13, they persevere. 
When these leaders observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men. Side note, Holy Spirit power, greater than sign, education. Just saying. I'm not anti-education. Much, much better to have God's Holy Spirit power at work within you. They were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. They couldn't do anything. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, that's the the council, they conferred among themselves saying, what do we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. They didn't have, uh, you know, security cameras or iPhone footage, but there was enough people that saw this, like we can't change the story at this point. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now again, what's Peter going to do? Classic verse um, on the subject of civil disobedience here. Peter and John answered them, listen, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. <laughs> That's some subtle shade right there. Just, ah, you want to fight with God, you take it up with God. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After releasing them further, they, uh, after threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man who's over 40 years old. He's been around for a long time. There's no way that he was faking it. Now, the leaders are in a conundrum. They want to punish these disciples. They want to shut down their proclamation of this message, but they can't because what they have done has been such a public blessing that all of the people love and treasure them. What an amazing thought. Church, I long for this for our church community. I long that if the day ever comes where I and we are told to stop proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of God's word, I long and pray that when the sheriff's county deputy shows up, they have a really hard time knowing what to do because we have loved and served our community and made such a positive impact in, in, the, in the practical ways of the love of Jesus. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something to be that kind of a church? Wouldn't it be something, you know, we've been, over these last few months, we've been partnering with the Nourishing Network and Pastor Kyle and Pastor Jason does such a great job of leading the charge on that, of of people giving food for families in need and going and doing these pop-up pantries and packing boxes. But friends, there's so, so, so much more that we can do. Before we ever get to acts of civil disobedience and drawing a line in the sand, what if we put the priorities where Jesus told us to put the priorities to go take care of the sick and to take care of the poor and to go bring comfort to those who are in distress? What if we made such an impact in that way? And my, my, my concern pastorally, my concern pastorally is for some of you, You are just so quick and so ready to draw a line in the sand and fight with the powers of the day over things that, friends, are frankly stupid and not of eternal value. Some of you almost, and again, 
I'm gonna let the Holy Spirit do the work on your heart if this is you. But some of you are almost like you're looking for a fight. You're, you're ready for acts of civil disobedience. You're ready to draw lines in the sand in places that we are not called to draw lines in the sand in. Others of you, you're gonna be tempted to just give up and go with the flow and never draw a line in the sand and never rock the boat and never ruffle feathers and never be willing to stick your neck out. Some of you, if, if, if donations to churches someday become non-tax deductible, some of you will stop tithing and giving. You'll just go with the flow. Friends, there, there are times, principally, we're, we're called to obey the ruling authorities. That's what Romans 13 says. But there are times where in that overlap intention, we must draw a line in the sand. I think of the example of the Hebrew midwives. I think of the example of Rahab in the city of Jericho. I think of the example of Daniel and, and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael in Babylon. I think of Peter and John here in Roman-occupied Israel. But those examples are few and far between, and they're over some really important things. Going through those examples the last week or two, I basically find to save human life, like the midwives or Rahab did, or this is about loyalty and allegiance to the one true God, like Daniel and, and Peter and John here. Kind of those two things. Someone's trying to kill someone, you stand up against the authorities. Someone's trying to tell you not to worship Jesus, you stand up. Outside of that, you're going to be on some shakier ground biblically. Jesus said in Luke 9, if you want to follow after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses and forfeits himself? Some of you are really focused on your life and gaining what you want and, and your world, and Jesus is inviting you to die and to follow him. Last one. They preach, they persevere even in the, in the face of opposition, now they pray. After they were released, they went to their own people. They went back to the community of Jesus and they reported everything to the chief priests that, that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and they go into a beautiful time of worship and prayer. They do not start writing letters to the editor or just sitting around complaining about things. They run to God in scripture-soaked, spirit-empowered worship and prayer. Master, let's Lord, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in, in them. How about that for some perspective? If the Sanhedrin can arrest us, you made the sea. Let's have some perspective. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant. What a great verse about the inspiration of scripture. We'll have to come back to that some other time. This is what David wrote in Psalm 2. Why do the Gentiles rage, or the nations? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Again, we're still politicking here. 
that the nations of all the earth take their stand against the rightful rulership of God Almighty. And Rabbi Matt said it so well a few weeks ago that the, the Christ followers are sent out to declare that there is one God, one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to reclaim the nations from these foreign gods, these idols, and to invite all into the family of Abraham through the adoption as sons and daughters into the family. They're praying this stuff. For in fact, they say, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do, listen to this, whatever your will had predestined, your hand had predestined to take place. These rulers thought that they were in charge, but God, we know that you are sovereign over all things and nothing can thwart your perfect plan of salvation and redemption. Man, watch out. They almost sound like Calvinists there. And now, Lord, consider their threats and smash their teeth. Consider their threats and destroy them with facts and logic. Consider their threats and let them all get saved. Now, what do they pray? Consider their threats and grant that we, your servants, may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing, signs, wonders performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They basically pray to be faithful. How many of you know our job is faithfulness, God's job is results? Lord, help us to just keep doing what you've asked us to do while you do amazing signs, wonders, miracles. When they had prayed... The place where they were assembled was shaken. I don't know what that's like, but I want it. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? They began to speak the word of God boldly. There's one of our words for preaching. They began to speak uh, with parousia. I'll just make a simple point about this. Friends, prayer is so much more important than you or I often realize. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? I don't know about you, but when I'm faced with a challenge, I find that I am quick to run to strategizing and to planning and to just talking or to venting. Lord, would you make us more quick to run to you in scripture-soaked, spirit-led prayer? (sighs) In just a moment, I'm going to invite Pastor Steve to come up and lead us in a celebration of communion, the Lord's table, where we remember, we experience, uh, the, 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 even the, in a mysterious sort of way, the presence of Christ with us through these elements that, that, that stand for his body that was broken and his blood that was shed. And, and before we do that, I just want to offer you some questions, some things to reflect on, some things to ask yourself during this time of reflection and prayer. First question is this, what would it look like if you really understood your primary political allegiance to the kingdom of God? What would that look like? Let me, let me offer you this. We say Jesus is Lord 
And for us as modern 21st century Christians, it sounds like a very spiritual thing to say, Jesus is Lord. When the earliest Christians were saying Jesus is Lord, do you know that the words Caesar is Lord was printed on their money and to declare Jesus is Lord was an act of political subversion to say my primary allegiance is to another kingdom. Jesus is Lord is a loaded thing to say. How much attention, how much mental space and emotional energy do you spend on American politics in any given week? Now, I'm not saying that stuff is unimportant. It is important, but it is not God who made the heavens and the earth and filled the seas kind of important. Friends, you with me? Like like on Wednesday, November 4th, If your guy loses, are you going to cry that your candidate lost the election? Are you going to cry that there are people outside of the kingdom of God who are lost and going to hell apart from surrendering to Jesus Christ? Will you shed a tear for the lost souls or will you shed a tear for a lost election? What would it look like for Jesus to really mess up your political priorities and get the kingdom first. Number two, what would it look like for you to really proclaim the gospel? Like really proclaim the gospel to consider yourself a preacher of the good news of Jesus Christ. To not spend 10 years dancing around the edges, but to say, hey, can we just be friends? And if you hate me and disagree with me, I'm still gonna be your friend, but I just gotta tell you the most incredible thing I have ever heard about. He died He rose, he's coming again. Let me tell you about my savior, Jesus. Number three, what would it look like for our church to be this kind of redemptive presence in our community? To where if that day did come where we get in trouble for just having a Bible, Lord, I pray that never happens. But if it does, when the authorities show up to arrest us for having Bibles, they're kind of befuddled at what to do because we have been such a blessing to the community. Fourth thing to think about, what would it look like if we prayed with this kind of scripture-soaked conviction and Holy Spirit power? We've been talking for a few years about growing in people as people of prayer. You know what this, this whole prayer thing, growing as people of prayer, it starts when you show up on Sunday morning and you actually like open your voices and you start singing to God through the songs that are a form of praying. For some of you, it means shutting off your, any sort of you know, technology, your phone or whatever, and just sitting quietly in his presence by yourself for 10, 15, 30 minutes and just, Lord, still my heart before you so I can hear you in the, just the cacophony and all the noise. What would it look like if we were really people of prayer? I'm gonna pray. Pastor C is gonna come lead us in communion. I'll just say this, nations will rise, nations will fall. We are not living in the promised land. We are waiting for his kingdom to come. But we are already citizens of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So let's pray, let's persevere, and let's proclaim the good news of Jesus. Lord, rearrange us. Lord, we confess that we are a mess. And we confess that though you are Lord of lords and King of kings, we are prone to distraction. We are prone to put our trust in earthly rulers and earthly princes. Help us, I pray to be a redemptive presence here in our communities. Help us to persevere when things get tough. 
Help us to pray like our lives depended on it and help us to proclaim the gospel with boldness to any and all who would listen. And would you even strengthen us for that right now in this meal that we're going to partake of in Jesus' name. Amen.